And I want to give you just a little bit of a background um, that's going to help us as we begin this journey, this historic moment uh, going on here in Acts. And, and we're going to do something. It's going to be fun today. I'm going to talk real fast. And at the end of it all, what we're going to have done is we're going to, have, we've, we're going to fly over the book of Acts. We're going to look at stuff in every single chapter. We're going to do this big overview uh, in the book of Acts, as, and that we don't normally do this, like we don't normally start journeying through Scripture and just kind of do an overview of the whole book first, uh, but this is going to be really good today, and so I'm excited about it, and I'm going to talk fast because, you know, we could take a verse and spend an hour here, and I'm going to walk us through 28 chapters, um, so pray, would you? Um, and so it's going to be more of a, of a preparation period for us to, as we get ready to dive into this. We're going to come back around to chapter 1, starting in verse uh, like 6. Uh, next, uh, we're going to skip a week. Next week, we're going to talk about racial reconciliation. Uh, this is kind of a, another fixture in our calendar of sermons that we want to come around the idea, how do we get uh, engaged in making the world a better place, a less racial place to live, a, a racist place to live, might I, should I say. Uh, and then we'll pick back up in Acts the next week uh, in verse 6. Uh, but we're going to fly over today, and just like every other book in the Bible, there's two authors. There's a divine author, and then there's a human author, and that's the case for all 66 books of the Scriptures. And the human author is this guy named Luke. Um, and Luke is a pretty unique guy. He was a medical doctor, but he was also a historian. Um, and in addition to that, he was kind of like a traveling companion to this guy named Paul that we'll learn about as we jump through this book uh, today. Uh, and Paul uh, was a pretty significant person in the life of the early church. If you don't know that, he was one of the apostles. Um, and Luke writes this two-volume work. Um, he, 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 in, in this two-volume work is really kind of coming around one, one big idea. Uh, and, and it's pretty much uh, the, the one book, the, the Gospel of Luke, was the prequel to, to, to the book of Acts. And so you have the same author, the one who wrote uh, the Gospel of Luke is the one who wrote the book of Acts. And so he kind of does this two-volume work, and in his Gospel, he takes careful attention to interview eyewitnesses. Um, he takes careful attention to gather the facts, and he works really, really hard to not leave out any important details as he shares the life of Jesus uh, through his Gospel. And through the inspiration of the Spirit, he gives us the birth and the teachings and the many, many miracles and the ministry of Jesus. And then it climaxes with Jesus' uh, death um, on the cross, and then it ends with the account of Jesus' resurrection. And then Jesus would spend 40 days post-resurrection hanging out with his disciples and just kind of having some last-minute moments uh, with his disciples after the resurrection before he ascends into heaven. And, and at first glance, and I've kind of said this before, that's pretty bad news. It's pretty bad news that Jesus is fixing to ascend into heaven and leave his disciples here. The incompetent ones. The selfish ones, the doubtful ones, the prideful and the arrogant ones, the not good enough ones, the uneducated ones, the poor ones, the busy with other priorities disciples, those guys. That's who he's, that's who he's leaving behind. The disciples who had families or jobs or other things that are take higher priority and they just really don't have time for this thing that Jesus is leaving them to do. That's the guys he left with this mission. And he's ascending into heaven. And so at face value, it just seems like a terrible plan. I mean, we got to walk with these guys for several years through Jesus' ministry. And you saw them just trip and stumble and fall trying to figure out how to walk life in this new way that Jesus is casting vision for. And then he says, okay, guys, this is it. I'm out of here. Mission's yours. Take it easy. And it's like, no, don't do that. I mean, 
These are some fools, and we are some fools. Don't leave us with this, right? So it seems like a terrible plan at face value, and then Luke would end this gospel um, this way, and then he would pick up in the book of Acts. And while this book uh, has been called, some of your Bibles might even say it, mine says it at the top, the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit or the Acts of the Church. It's all named a different thing. The big idea is that the Acts is the continuing work of Jesus. It's the, it's the continuing work. After he's ascended to heaven, after he's commissioned the disciples to go and make more disciples all over the place, uh, the book of Acts records that continuing work. And it's important uh, to get this, lest you think for one second that Jesus' mission ended with his ascension. That Jesus' mission ended once he, once he ascended to heaven and he, and he was no longer on earth. His mission didn't end there. In fact, his mission would intensify at this point. After he leaves, we looked at that in the book of John. Like, no, Jesus said, it's better for me to go because the mission, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and the mission is going to intensify. We're just kind of putting our toe in the water here in these first three or four years, but now it's fixing to move. And so in the book of Acts, chapter 1 is where we're going to go. And you just, want to, you just want to open your Bible or open Acts on whatever you're reading with us on, and we're just going to be going chapter by chapter. And we're going to hit some moments. And what I want to do is I want to point out one theme throughout the entire book of, of, this, of this study that we're going to be going through. So in the, in the first verse, the, the book of Acts, chapter 1, he, Luke opens up and he says, In the first book, the first book being the Gospel of Luke. The prequel. In the first book, O Theophilus, this guy, he's writing the, 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 this account of the church uh, movement. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So what is the gospel of Luke about? All that Jesus began to do. All that Jesus started. This movement that began out of his life and out of his ministry. Everything where it began, where it started. And then in verse 2, he says, Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, whom he had chosen. What's the book of Acts about? All that Jesus continues to do to advance his kingdom. It's this two-volume work that Luke's given us. From the beginning of Acts to the end, it teaches us about the kingdom. Just look at verse 3. He presented himself alive to them, he's talking about Jesus, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And if you flip all the way to the back of the, the book of Acts, chapter 28, verse 30, it says, this is Paul, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. What we have in the beginning of the book of Acts is Jesus speaking about the kingdom of God. What you have at the very end of the book of Acts is Paul speaking and about the, the kingdom of God and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And you have a span of about 30 years in between those two moments that Jesus is advancing his kingdom by declaration and by demonstration of the gospel through his church. That's how the gospel got movement. It's how the, how the gospel moved forward. And those 30 years was through the church. This, in, this advancement, it began with this small pocket of, of nobodies, of these ragtags who were tucked away in this back alley of Jerusalem. They start meeting and trying to list, you know, understand Jesus just left, what's going on. And, and what you see by the end of Acts is that the apostle Paul is proclaiming the kingdom of God 
in the belly of the beast, in the epicenter of the Gentile world. He's in Rome. That's how far the gospel would make it. From this little small pocket in Jerusalem, 30 years, they have, they have crossed land and sea, and the gospel has spread. And so this all happens through the church. So while his kingdom wasn't fully realized on earth at this point, Jesus was advancing this movement even in the midst of opposition. And that's the big theme that we're going to see today. I just want you to remember that everywhere we stop, you're going to see this. While his kingdom isn't fully realized here today on earth among us, he will continue to advance his kingdom even in the midst of opposition. It's still, it's still going on today that Jesus is working in and against opposition and his gospel is gaining ground. And this is where we're going to kind of pull the car over to the side of the road and we're going to kind of park here today. And, th and that's where we're going to spend some time. Jesus has all authority and power and he works in and among this world that is hostile toward this good news of the gospel. And he takes, like, taking, think about all the resistance and all the hostility to this kingdom that you're going to see in Acts. And one big theme is this. Nothing, nothing can or will stop the advancement of the kingdom of God. Nothing will stop it. It is, at every turn, the kingdom, the advancement of the gospel is trying to be stopped, and it just continues to grow and grow and grow. And so here's what I want us to do today. It's an overview to, to prepare for us to dive into this book, and we're going to walk through it over the next several months. I want to show you just a handful of examples in this book of this opposition to the gospel, of this opposition to Jesus, and how it continues to advance through the church. That's where we're going to go today. I want to show you this. And so following the, the ultimate act of opposition, which was the crucifixion, which was the cross, like that was the most hostile and brutal opposition of the gospel was there. Following that, this moment, for a slight second it did, but it should have, you know, in our day probably been a perpetual hopelessness and despair. Like the movement's over, the king has been crucified. But it was, in fact, what we learned throughout Scripture was that this was God's plan from the very beginning to rescue and to redeem you and me and this world from, from sin and death and to bring us into this kingdom, to, to usher in this kingdom and, and, and adopt us and invite us into this kingdom. And so what we're going to see in, the, in, the, in Acts as we continue is this just pattern of opposition and advance. Opposition and advance opposition in advance. I, and I, as I was studying this, I was thinking, I don't know if you guys ever, ever did this. If you see a spider on the, on the ground and you kind of stomp it, and it's one of those ones that has all their babies apparently hanging to them. And so when you stomp the spider, there's like 50 of them that just scatter. And you're like, well, there that went. And that's just the picture I have of the church here in the book of Acts, like stomping the spider and watching them all just scatter. And then they're going to go and multiply some more. And so that's what we're going to see, this, this, um, this rhythm and that'll pick up in chapter 2. Look at verse 1 if you're, if you're following along in chapter 2. It's a, a big moment in the, in the life of the church. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together, the disciples, in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. 
And at, the, at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and in the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. These cats are drunk. They're talking out of their heads. They make no sense. I can't, what is going on here? The promised Holy Spirit is sent just like Jesus said it would happen. You're gonna, we're going to start studying this. Uh, Bible study methods group. They're going to go home this week and they're going to do some homework and they're going to see exactly what I'm talking about. That don't go anywhere until I send the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, it's going to all break loose. And so he shows up in the, on, on the scene in chapter 2, and then, and then this history-shaping moment happens. And, and sadly, it's not good news for some of them who are watching. It's not good news to see what's going down here. And Peter would stand up to refute their claims, and then he just like stands there for 30 minutes and just drops gospel grenades on them, just preaches the gospel, talks about from the beginning, he walks all the way through the gospel, and then in chapter, four, uh, chapter 2, verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized and, were there, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Opposition and advance. Some people stand up and says, dude, you're drunk. And 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus that day. Opposition and advance. And then we get to chapter 3 and 4 in this movement, in this, in this moment when Peter and, and John went up to the temple. And as they were going there, they get to the gate. There's this blind beggar who's, who's asking for, for alms. And Peter and John, they get down with him and they lock eyes with him. And it says, hey, man, we got something better than money. We got something better than any resource that, you can, that someone can come over here and hand you. We have Jesus. Receive Jesus. This guy gets healed. He's miraculously healed. This causes quite a stir with everyone. And then chapter 4, verse 1, and, they, and as they were speaking to the people, they were trying to address the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word Believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000, nearly 5,000. Acts chapter 2, opposition, 3,000 people's added to the number that day. Acts chapter 3 through 4, opposition, nearly 5,000 people are added to the number that day. Stomp the spider, watch the babies run. Isn't that cool? In Acts chapter 5, we had this different kind of opposition to the church. Sometimes there's external opposition, and then sometimes there's, there's this uh, internal opposition. Outside, external opposition normally comes through persecution. Uh, inside, internal um, opposition typically comes through our sinfulness and our selfishness internally. And so we meet these two people in, in chapter 5 who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. 
And they end up lying to God the Spirit. This guy Ananias and his wife Sapphira, uh, this couple, they scheme away to, to uh, uh, gain notoriety and to gain honor by presenting uh, a gift to the church. And basically what they do is they go there and say, hey, man, we sold some property and we made all this money and we're here to give it to the church. Everybody look at us. Giving this to the church right here. Looking for favor, right? And so... What we learn through scriptures, that's not actually the whole truth. They actually keep some of that money for themselves, and then they lie about it whenever they were confronted. And Peter would accuse Ananias of lying to God. And in verse 5 of chapter 5, it says, When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yeah, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. The early church wasn't very seeker-sensitive, was it? I mean, really, like if we're trying to get people and we're trying to gain an audience in here, you don't want this kind of stuff going down in the church, people dying and falling out and dragging them out and burying them. So the early church didn't have a good concept of the seeker-sensitive, everybody's welcome, come on in, we'll work out the details later. This would hinder our work, and you see this internal opposition within the church and then you see how the people respond in verse 11. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Maturity, growth is happening because of what's going on in here with this opposition. The growth of the church and the work of God advances uh, in the midst of this opposition. Chapter 6 is where we're headed next. There's this young, there's just, uh, it's, another, it's an internal problem that uh, would normally break up any momentum to a movement. Uh, then this usually comes with any type of growth. Even today, as we grow, we could experience trouble like this. As the church continued to add more and more to her number, a lot of good and exciting things were happening. Uh, people are spending meaningful, meaningful time together. They're growing in the Lord. They're having real biblical community together. And then all of a sudden, it starts kind of becoming unorganized. And things start happening, and the apostles find that the primary responsibilities that they felt called to do uh, are being neglected so that they're caring and trying to get these things organized and get them situated. And the more the problem grows, the farther the door of sin is creeped open until, uh, until it's open far enough for racism to enter into the church. In verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1, these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, these are, these are Greek converts, the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. It was a, it was a pretty terrible thing that, that there was, there were, there was a, a group of people who were getting preference over another group of people inside the church. That's, a, that's how it had, had, it had gone to that point. And so... What should take place in this moment, what would take place probably in this space if something like that were to happen, was that there would be a huge split and that families would be mad at other families and you would be checking out and they would be going there until eventually this thing would implode on herself. That's what normally happens. And instead, the, the apostles, they get together, they devise this plan. And they say, we're going to install these deacons. These are, these are people who, who were leaders in the church that would lead by organizational serving so that everyone would be cared for, that everyone would not have to go without. 
And instead of the church disbanding and fizzling out, at this point, I want you to look what happens in verse 7. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Opposition and advance. Opposition and advance. And after some time passes, we pick up in chapter 7 and 8, where things get really, really intense and really, really dark. In chapter 7, we're introduced to one of these deacons that, we, that was installed in, in chapter 7. Uh, Stephen was a guy who loved Jesus. He loved the church. He was full of grace. He was full of power. He was an amazing preacher of the gospel. And as he began a sermon um, in our text in chapter 7, he begins by telling the crowd the mission of God. And he goes all the way back to the beginning. And he walks through the, the purpose and the mission of God all the way up to the point of the crucifixion of Jesus. And at this moment, Stephen comes in with his left hook in his sermon. And if I could just sum it up, he basically says, You guys killed Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. Repent. That was his that was how he drove his point home through his entire uh, sermon. But instead of repenting, verse 54, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This guy Saul was a prideful, ambitious, educated guy who had influence, who had power. And there he was giving hearty affirmation to what just happened. And not only that, but it would fuel the violence within Paul himself or Saul himself at this point. And he would begin persecuting believers all over the place. In chapter 8, verse 3, we pick him up. He was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed, committed them to prison. So if earlier opposition couldn't kill this movement, surely a combination of Stephen's martyrdom, Stephen's death, linked up with families being torn apart and ravaged apart would get the job done. Surely this is going to kill the movement, right? Chapter 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. In the midst of opposition, in the midst of fierce persecution, the gospel only spreads. They cannot stop the advance. And now it has reached this place called Samaria by this guy named Philip. Unclean spirits were being driven out of many of the people. The people were, who were paralyzed were being healed. They were being, being able to walk again. And Scripture would say there was much joy in that city. Because all the fierce persecution and opposition against the, the, the advance of the gospel, the advance of the kingdom, there's much joy in the city. Can we say that for our city? Can we say that for our city? Can we say that because we're under fierce opposition and, and, and there's persecution, uh, that, that it's bringing about joy in our community, in our neighborhood, in our city? And Philip is called out to the desert by the Spirit where he would meet this powerful and prominent Ethiopian man. And as he comes to him, he sees this guy reading the book of Isaiah. And this was a prophecy that was written hundreds and hundreds of years earlier about Jesus himself. And we pick that up in verse 30 of chapter 8. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, 
do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And then Philip begins walking with the, through, the, through the scriptures with this guy. And he starts teaching this guy the good news about Jesus. And this Ethiopian man would put his faith in Jesus and he would be immediately baptized and he would go on his way. Guess what? A gospel seed is now on its way to Africa. A gospel seed is now being sent to Egypt because of the faithfulness of the early church, ravaging and persecuting the church doesn't snuff out the fire. It only fuels it. This guy, second century historian, his name was Tertullian, and I don't know if you guys have ever heard of him before, but he said this about martyrs, people who, who are, whose life is taken from them because of their faith in Jesus, martyrs. He said this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And you see that all throughout the book of Acts. And then in chapter 9, the guy we met earlier, Saul, is still on his rampage. And he's, he's, he's out to end this Jesus movement, and he's, and he's headed to this place called Damascus. And we pick his, his moment up in verse uh, 3 of chapter 9. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me and he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The great persecutor Saul will now be counted among the persecuted as he begins to preach the gospel. Jews and Greeks alike, they want him dead. The, the, the disciples themselves are skeptical and they don't even want anything to do with him. And in light of all of this mounting opposition, verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Making much of God in our neighborhoods and to the nations by reflecting Jesus Christ equals multiplying churches. That's what it, that's, if we're doing that right, what we should see is joy in our city and, and churches being multiplied. And when, if, when we don't see joy in our city and when we don't see churches being multiplied, then we, we, we could be sure that we're not here yet, that we haven't made it, we haven't arrived yet. And what I hope you will all see today and what you're seeing as we walk through this is whether you are with us or not, Jesus will advance the gospel. The question is, are you going to come along or not? The question is, are you going to join in? Are you going to say yes to the invitation of, to, that Jesus is asking you to, to jump on board? Let's do this. It's going to hurt. You're probably going to lose your life. You're going to definitely lose some things for sure. But it's the greatest thing to be a part of. In verses, Acts chapter 10 and 11, we would see that the gospel starts making its way into the Gentile communities. And this would result in the first multicultural church that ever existed on planet Earth being planted in this city called Antioch. We pick that up um, in chapter 12, or, or chapter 11, really, if you look at verse 26, it would say that Antioch, this place where the, the, this first multicultural church was planted, was the place where, where the word Christian was first said out loud. Like, we don't know how to describe this group of people. We'll just call them Christians, like little Jesuses or whatever we'll call them. That's what we'll call them. And so that's, that's where the name came from. But in, in chapter 12 of Acts, tragedy hits the heart of the church. 
And you look with me at chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. James is murdered. Peter would be miraculously set free by this angel of the Lord. Sometime later, Herod would... Um, he would be addressing this crowd, uh, and when they made him out to be like a god, they were like, oh my goodness, this must be God himself. And he just kind of affirmed that in him. He was, he was immediately uh, struck dead. The, the, the angel of the Lord had struck him down uh, because it, Scripture would say he was robbing. He wasn't giving God the glory, that he was taking it for himself. And in the midst of all of this chaos in the, in the early church, they just lost James. Peter's, Peter's like he's on the run in verse 24 of chapter 12, the word of God increased and multiplied. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas, are, they're, they're in Antioch, and the Spirit of God sends them out to Cyprus on this kind of first missionary journey to continue the advancement of the gospel. And they make their way to a, a, another Antioch in Pisidia. This, where they were at was a, a, the Antioch in Syria. And, and they begin sharing the gospel in this new town, in this new place. And once again, the Jewish communities, uh, they begin to revile them. And once again, chapter 13, verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, opposition and advance, opposition and advance. Acts chapter 14, we have Paul and Barnabas. They pre they're preaching the gospel in a city named Iconium. Uh, and they narrowly escape being stoned to death at that point. They, um, they flee to the next city, Lystra, and, and begin preaching the gospel there. And the Jews from Antioch and Iconium actually come and track them down. They heard that they're there. They'd run them out of their town. They heard they were in the next town over, so we're going to catch up with them there. And when they catch up with them there, they stone Paul to the point where they feel like he's dead, and they just drag his body out to the city and just leave it and dump it out there. But Paul's not dead. God's grace would spare him. And you would think that for Paul that this would be the jumping off point. It would, I hate to say it, but it might be the jumping off point for me. You know, I'm just human. I'm trying to be real. But instead, he gets up, brushes himself off, and goes right back into the, to the city. And then the next day, he would go to this place called Dearby in and, and verse uh, 21 of chapter 14. When they heard when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Let that sink in. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Opposition only fuels the mission. In Acts chapter 15, we have this circumcision party. Who uh, These are a group of early believers. They were a little bit confused. And they taught that, you know what, you're, yeah, you're saved by, by Jesus. You're saved by grace. But you're also, like, tradition also has to be a part of that, right? We have this tradition. And so these Judaizers, they begin stirring up trouble because Gentiles being saved, period, are just flying in their face of what they believe, right? Gentiles, they, they, can't, belong, they can't belong to this circle. And so they kind of get a, a little confused. And they say, okay, if Gentiles are going to be part of this movement, they at least need to be circumcised. Like They at least need to adhere to some kind of tradition that we have. And so this drives the church. They are, 
they are all kind of on the edge of their seats, and it drives the leaders to, to convene the first church council at, at Jerusalem. All the leaders would get together, and, and, and instead of, of, ha- of passively allowing this, this doctrinal error of, of Jesus plus works uh, to take root, these leaders would lean in, and they would gain greater clarity of the gospel. They, they wouldn't shirk their responsibilities, and they'd say, you know what? We're going to hold steady the ropes of truth. And the ropes of truth are that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's, that's the foundation of our faith. It's not Jesus plus, any, plus anything else. And so there's more tragedy that happens in chapter 15, uh, and it's not persecution, it's not opposition, it's not martyrdom. It's, it's even more painful than that. It's two believers who experience conflict with one another to a point where they split up and they go their separate ways. Two of the, the, the trailblazers of the early church have conflict that they can't seem to work out. And they say, you know what, we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm, you go this way and I'm going to go that way. And that, that picks up in chapter 15, verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. We're going to learn about that when we get to that point. Basically, John Mark checked out. When things got tough, he said, I'm out, guys. I'm going back home. And Paul still kind of held a grudge about that. And he said, you know what? We're not giving him a second chance. I'm not going with him. You want to take him? You take him. I'm not taking him. And there arose a sharp disagreement, and, and that they separate, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose, chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And instead of this breaking up the movement, what do we see in the next verse? Chapter, chapter 15, verse 41. He went throughout Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Opposition makes for a strong church. Comfort does not. Comfort makes for a weak, sissy church. Opposition makes a strong church. Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas, they make it to Philippi where they cast a demon out of this young girl and they, and, and they stir up a riot. And because this is a possessed slave girl, she made her owner a bunch of money. Uh, he he, he kind of used her as, as entertainment. Um, and so he dragged Paul and Silas to the city rulers and said, hey, look, these guys are causing trouble. They're messing up my, my, my job over here. My business is kind of go, going in the tank because of the things that they're saying. So he had them stripped and beaten and thrown in jail, and this caused this big ruckus. And proceeding and following this, rather than the Philippian church kind of being snuffed out, the jailer who was in charge of, of Paul and Silas at that point, he meets Jesus. His, his family meets Jesus. Uh, this lady, uh, who, a businesswoman named Lydia, she meets Jesus. This group would become the core, the nucleus of the church at Philippi, which was one of the healthiest churches in the New Testament. And in Acts chapter 17, another riot would break out while Paul and Silas are in the city of Thessalonica. And Paul would go to the synagogue and he would say, chapter 17, verse 2, he went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and providing that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. 
But again, some of the Jews became, become jealous, and they chase them out of town. This, this cycle that keeps going on, and this only leads to the gospel being planted among the Bereans uh, before being chased out of Berea, and they get chased to Athens, and then that only leads to the Athenians uh, receiving Jesus here in the gospel. After this, while, while they're still in, in the city of Athens, Paul runs into some philosophers uh, at this place called the Areopagus, uh, also known as Mars Hill, like this is where kind of all the educated uh, philosophers would kind of convene uh, during the day and they would kind of just reason and debate all of these real uh, uh, intricate details of, of, of the world and everything else. And so he runs into these guys and, and they begin mocking him because they're like, they, you know, he's specifically talking about the resurrection of Christ and they're like, do what? That, that, that doesn't line up with, with, you know, everything we believe. And so they start mocking him. And even in the midst of this mockery, chapter 17, verse 34, some men joined him and believed. Among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Because even the gates of hell cannot stop the advance of the gospel. It continues to move. It continues to push forward. It, it doesn't matter if there's opposition there. It's going to only fuel the spread of the gospel. Chapter 18, Paul goes to this place called Corinth. Uh, you, you might know that name from the, the book of Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians, and there's some other books of Corinthians that we don't have in our Bibles. Uh, but he is mocked and he's reviled and he's basically, he basically says, okay guys, this is what it is. This is the gospel. You can take it or leave it. It's your loss. And he just kind of steps out of the crowd. Uh, and, the, and it says in the, in the next verses, chapter 18, verse 7 and 8, And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And then we're introduced to an interesting guy named Apollos. Um, this guy was educated. He was sharp. Uh, he was a believer. He knew the scriptures pretty good, but he was a little weak in his doctrine. He didn't quite have all the dots connected. He, he was kind of getting Jesus right, but he was kind of getting repentance and conversion wrong. In chapter 18, verse 26 is what I'm talking about. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, when, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Instead of heresy stopping the movement of the church, a husband and a wife who are not intimidated by this guy's intelligence, just some normal people, they approach him to have an honest conversation to help this guy connect the dots. Like, you, you're almost there, man, but listen, I know you're smart. I know you did a lot of studying, did a lot of reading. You, you, know, you seem like you're a pretty uh, well-established well man, but you got some stuff wrong, and, and I'd like to talk to you about that. So what's the result? Chapter 18, verse 28. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that, Christ, that the Christ was Jesus. Opposition makes for bold believers. This guy's boldness only grew. In chapter 19, many of the people of the synagogue were stubborn, and they were unbelieving. And so Paul decides to say, you know what? I'm going to take these few people who really kind of want to lean into this, and I'm going to have a Bible study with them. And I'm not talking about like he just kind of took them off and said, we're going to meet together next week, and then we'll, I'll show you what I'm talking about. Two years. He meets with them for two years, chapter 19, verse 10. The, they, this continued for two years so that all, listen to this, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. 
Then we meet Demetrius. This is a silversmith who, who he, he made idols uh, for worship, for, for worshiping false gods. And so his business, this is pretty cool, his business is in sharp decline. Uh, when when the, the gospel starts spreading into a community, uh, the, the, all the idol worship kind of starts dying. And so the guy who makes his profit off of that, uh, he gets a little uh, cantankerous because of his, um, his business kind of going into the tank because people are repenting and believing in Jesus. And so he stirs up this citywide riot, uh, and he runs Paul and the disciples out of town only to scatter Paul to backtrack to all the churches that he had planted, all those churches that he had just come from, back to those places to strengthen and encourage them. And after Paul has some really, really, really meaningful conversations, these church leaders that he was meeting with throughout the region he, he sets his sights to head to Jerusalem. And this is, you're going to learn about this as we get into that text a little bit more deeply. Um, this is a sad and somber moment for the life of Paul because he'd kind of been everywhere. And I don't know if you picked up on it so far. Everywhere he went, trouble was stirred. A and they wanted him dead. They even tried to kill him. They wanted him dead. And so this was, a, this was kind of a, a, a sad moment because everybody, it was kind of one of those deals where in the room, everybody knew what was going to happen if Paul went back to Jerusalem. And so they're sitting there like, man, Paul, don't go back to Jerusalem, man. You know what's going to happen. You know what's going to happen. If you go back to Jerusalem, you're done. They've been waiting for you in Jerusalem. Don't go back there. And we see in chapter 20, verse 22, this is Paul says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, and not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I have no idea what's going to happen to me, but I know that God is calling me there. And if he wants to torture me, if he wants to persecute me, if he wants my life, I don't care. His glory is more valuable than anything else, anything that I might bring to the table. And so if that's what he wants, that's what he's going to get. Are you a, are you a church member who's ready to say that? Are you someone in the room who's ready to say, I have no idea what's on the other side of this for me, but I know that God's calling me to it, and if it costs my life, I don't care. I'm going. Because his glory is so much more valuable, so much uh, better for this world than me. Or, is anybody in the room ready for that? Are you ready to say that? Are you ready to, to, to make that kind of commitment? We want to be a New Testament church. That sounds good, just rolling off our tongues, doesn't it? Until you start looking at what the New Testament church had to go through to push the gospel to the ends of the earth. But that's what we're after. And so chapter 21 through 26, things get real crazy. Paul arrives in Jerusalem, and after he was, spent a few days with the, with the disciples, recounting all the things that God had done to advance the gospel, they head to the temple. They're going to the place where Paul, it's obvious what's fixing to happen. And as expected, he's immediately dragged out and beaten and arrested. And before being brought back to the barracks, the authorities allow him to speak for a minute. They give him some, some public uh, address time, and he begins to share his testimony. He begins to start with, here's, here's what it was like for me. Guys, I was after Christians. My whole goal in life was to snuff out Christianity. 
And here I am now. And he walks through that entire process sharing his testimony about how he met Jesus and how that encounter ravaged his whole life. And now he's just a slave to Jesus and he wouldn't have it any other way. And so he shares that story. And this would only increase the violence of the crowd. He'd get them more and more worked up. And just, begin, just before they begin to flog him, they got him stretched out. They're getting ready to, to, to basically kill him at that point. He pulls his dip, diplomatic immunity card. And he says in verse 25 of chapter 20, 22, But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? He waited till the very last minute, and he pulls that card. And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to them, What are you doing? What are you, what are you, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So Paul buys himself a little bit more time because no one would dare lay a hand on a Roman citizen except Rome. No one. And so while he's in custody, he continues to be questioned uh, by some of the most prominent people in all of the land. And Felix, the governor, and his wife, Drusilla, hears the gospel. The Romans hear the gospel. King Agrippa and his wife, Bernice, hear the gospel. And then Paul appeals to Caesar. He says, I want to take my case before Rome. What's going on here? Uh, you know, I'm just. And so this results in a, in a long journey from Paul, for Paul from Jerusalem to Rome, leaving behind him a wake of gospel truth to thousands of communities on his way. And we pick up again in chapter 27. Paul is, he's on his way to Rome as a prisoner on a boat. Now, this isn't like a carnival cruise ship where he's kind of like headed to the Bahamas or anything like that. This is a prison ship. Uh, and so it's, it's probably not the best conditions. Paul is in chains. He's sitting in the bottom of the boat with a, another, a, a bunch of other prisoners. And to make matters worse, a storm blows in. And he is tossed, this ship is tossed back and forth through the sea for days and days and days before in the midst of this chaotic storm, they, the ship is, is wrecked. It goes down. Many of, Paul, many of the, the people as well as Paul, uh, their lives are spared by God's grace. And they wind up on this small island called Malta. How's your day going? You're going your day going pretty bad? Like, think about where Paul's at right now. The guy is just trying to go be dead. And he can't even get there and be dead. Everything is happening to him. He's on this prison ship, on his way to be executed. And now he's shipwrecked, and he's nearly hypothermic. And he ends up on this, stranded on this island. And like you and me, his first priority, let's find some heat. I'm fixing to die of hypothermia. Let's build a fire. Let's get some heat. And so what we see here in verse, uh, chapter 28, verse 3, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Now he's snake bit. The guy can't run from nothing. It's like, give me a break. And so when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. And I'm thinking at this point, Paul's like, man, I just wish I would die. I just wish I would die. So can we agree, listen to me, can we agree that the persecution that, that we experience today is probably at a different level than the persecution that the early church experienced? Can we agree that, can we agree that when Starbucks doesn't make a gospel-centered coffee cup design during Christmas, that it's going to be okay? That it's not persecution? Can we be okay if somebody at the department store says happy holidays and it's not so offensive and you're just like, oh, you just crucified Jesus? 
It's a different level of persecution. And we need to quit playing silly games. We really do. And Paul doesn't die. As much as, well, at this point, I want him to like, just put him out of his misery. In fact, in God's crazy display of grace and power, Paul is brought before the, the, the father of the governor of this island. This guy runs up on him. He says, hey, man, something's really cool with you because, like, you should be dead right now, but you're not. Uh, my dad's sick. Would you, come, would you come see him? See if there's anything you can do? And so Paul would go and lay his hands on this, this, this man and pray for him. And, and this man would be healed, and this would lead to an island-wide revival where people who are sick, every person on the island is, is healed. Why am I doing all of this? Why have we just journeyed through 28 chapters? Why? I believe the Spirit of God, through the writing of Luke, wants us to see that Jesus is going to advance his kingdom in the midst of opposition, in the midst of persecution. And what this means is that opposition and resistance and suffering and pain and all the difficulties of this world are no match for the ongoing advance of Jesus and his kingdom. They're not. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what hard problems you have in your life. The gospel is going to continue to move forward, and God would probably like it if he could use your suffering, use your pain, use your, your opposition, that moment that you're in right now, to advance his gospel. And we're, we're currently suspended in this difficult moment where the kingdom is both here and not yet. Um, Jesus, uh, he is king, and he has all authority on heaven and on earth, and his kingdom is advancing, but this kingdom has yet to be fully realized on earth. Death is still a reality. Sin and sickness and brokenness and sadness, they're all still a reality. And what you and I need to grab hold of as we begin this journey through the book of Acts is seeing Jesus clearly and following him on this mission of advancing the gospel. And let's not be surprised when difficult situations, when opposition and resistance come our way. It's part of his plan. It's part of his design. It's how he set it all up. And if I'm being honest with you, I worry deeply for our church. I do. Like I want you to just consider what we just saw in the book of Acts. Is this anything that we experience whatsoever? Is the, is the gospel advancing whatsoever in, the, in the, our neighborhood, in the, just this little pocket of where we are right now? And what I'm afraid of is that it's a little bit too inconvenient. It's, you know what? We don't have a lot of time for that. I got a lot of other things going on. We're not even willing to sacrifice the least little bit. And these people are sacrificing limb and life to see that the gospel moves that the gospel advances. And my role here, I feel like, is to preach and to teach in such a way that when this happens, you're not surprised. That it's not, it's not a surprise to you when trial and difficulty comes on your life. Because this is what we see. This is what we're called to. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And we're in this weird moment in culture that preaches so many false versions of the gospel. If you just have a little bit of faith in Jesus and trust him, everything's going to go your way. That's a load of junk. That doesn't make sense to me. If you follow Jesus, he will lead you out of your difficult circumstances. 
Now, the way I've experienced it, the more I trust Jesus, the more he leads me into difficult circumstances. That's how I've experienced him. The book of Acts is, a, is it's about as opposite to this kind of false gospel as you can get. And rather, it would show us that through many tribulations, you and I will enter the kingdom. And so I just want to read back over that, that section of, of verses in chapter 14. In verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. Follow along with this, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples after being stoned and nearly uh, uh, left for dead, they went and preached and made disciples. They returned to the place that tried to kill them and to Antioch, and they strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. This is as true for you and me as followers of Jesus as it was for these earlier followers of Jesus. It's as true for us today as it was for them. Through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom. This is true for those of us who strive to follow Jesus in our workplace. It's true for those of us who strive to follow Jesus on our school campuses and into the neighborhoods and to the nations. His kingdom usually advances. Not on the sweet days when all the skies are blue and when all is right and when all is comfortable, but on the dark days and the difficult days where there's tribulation and trial and trouble. And I haven't met many people, and I'm telling you this, I've met few people who've cultivated deep, deep, meaningful relationships with Jesus without suffering or difficulties. Typically, those people who just, who have this, this supernatural connection, this supernatural relationship with Jesus will tell you that that came out of something that I went through. And I'm holding on to this Savior for dear life now. There aren't many great missional movements that have taken place without opposition and trials. And in the book of Acts, Paul's going to show us that his job as a leader of the church was to encourage and to strengthen the saints of God and not to lose sight of who Jesus is whenever trouble shows up. Don't shy away from it. Go after it headlong. And I'm going to close and I'm going to share a story um, uh, this happened just this past week. Uh, some friends of mine, a friend that I grew up with, uh, they're planning a church in Laplace, Louisiana right now, uh, and they are, they are sent from a church, uh, a sending church in Hammond, where the pastors of that church has a, had a, gone through a, a pretty bad trial. Um, New Year's Eve, their, their son was leaving uh, a New Year's Eve gathering. He's a strong Christian believer who... Um, who just, uh, uh, you know, just, I, I never met the guy. I'm just trying to connect all the dots, and, 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 and he seemed to be a very encouraging uh, brother in the Lord. He's the son of these, this past, these pastors of this church. And on uh, Thursday, this past Thursday, um, the, the mom, uh, the, he had gone missing uh, New Year's Eve night, and they couldn't find him. They had a search party out for days and days and days. Um, and Thursday, uh, his mom posted this, and I'm going to just read it verbatim how she wrote it. This is a mom who just lost her son after four or five days of, of searching for him. Um, update on our precious Peter. We found him this morning about 9 a.m. Uh, when we found him, we realized he had already left this world and is now with Jesus where he's safe, warm, and full of great joy. If you knew Peter, you would know how anointed he was in the area of compassion. He would not want us to be sad because, um, because for Peter to be in God's presence was his favorite place. 
And that is where he will be forever. However, we will be a people without completely broken, with completely broken hearts for a while because of the great gift that has been lost. But we will see him again, and this is our hope, and surely as those who are in Christ. Honestly, I don't know how anyone comes through a tragedy like this without a real relationship with Jesus. So, if you don't know Jesus, ask him into your heart tonight and experience a joy that you have never known. He is real, and heaven is real. This would make Peter so happy. Once again, thank you to all of our, our new heroes out there, many of which we don't even know. Unbelievable. You sacrificed time, money, resources, time with your families, and allowed yourself to experience our suffering. There is no greater gift that you could have given us when you laid down your lives for our precious Peter. Love to all. I pray that you will be blessed and that you will reap all the love that you have sown into our families. This was, she was writing this on the day that she, they found her son after he'd been stranded in the, in the woods for several days and ended up dying because of the cold weather. Um, so what I worry about uh, and what I want for our church is not to have this entertainment-driven experience when you come here. It's not what we're after. God forbid we ever go after that. God forbid we ever try to become a seeker-sensitive church. We want the gospel to drive people. That's what we want. And so when we gather here, what I want more than anything is for us to be a people of faith who see Jesus clearly, no matter the circumstances, no matter what's going on, that he has all authority in heaven and on earth, and that we embrace the guarantee that we enter into this perfect and beautiful kingdom through many tribulations, through many tribulations. Our faith will be tested It will be tested. And what I pray about each week as I stand before you, pleading Jesus over you, is that you would be prepared for the day when difficulties come. That this is what this is about. We're preparing you for that day when God calls you to something, uh, a dark time in your life, a, a moment of suffering that he wants to use to make his glory known in your life. The kingdom advances in difficult and dark places. And we need to be a people who's going to hold on to Jesus and trust him as he leads us into these places. And so for those of you in the room um, who may not believe in Jesus for your salvation, um, I'm sorry if this ruined your day. I really am. And um, I, I want to I say two things to you. Um, he loves you. He does love you. And he does desire you to trust him. And I hope you see that by the way he crosses over so many chasms to get to those who are far from him. I hope you see that. And the second thing I want to say is this. I'm not willing to sell you a fake Jesus. I'm not willing to do that. I'm not willing to go there. The promise is that he does forgive and he does redeem your past. And if you just put your faith in him and the finished work on the cross, he will receive you. And he promises He promises that there's going to be trials. He promises you that there are going to be hardships. but we follow him anyway because he's better. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come to you in this moment and I'm so thankful that you've given us so many good gifts, so many, so many moments in our, in our lives where you've shown yourself to be so big and, and so powerful. God, I thank you for your Holy Spirit and the conviction of the Holy Spirit that has 
definitely done a number in my heart. Um, God, just as I look through what, what the early church looks like, and I will never, Father, forbid I ever say that I desire to be part of a New Testament church without fully believing that and being fully willing to lean in and step into all that that means for us. I pray over this church right now, Father, and I... God, I thank you so much that you have allowed this time and this space and my life and in my family's life to be a part of such a beautiful moment of planning this church, of seeing a people who desire to make you known. God, I pray this moment right now would be a moment of repentance for every one of us. For the games that we play, for the big words that we use, We talk about so many good ideas and so many theories and we know so much of your word and we're so unwilling to walk in it. So I pray that this be a moment of repentance for us right now. Would you refresh our minds and refresh our hearts on what it actually means to be the church, what it actually means to go and make much of you in a place where people don't give a rip about you, and what that means for us and what we would be subjected to. Would you reveal to us our unwillingness to want to go and lean into that and through the power of your spirit grant us repentance and grant us a restart. That's what I'm praying every person's New Year resolution is. Is that we'd be a people about you and your name and your glory no matter what it costs. So use this time, Father, in, in whatever way seems good to you. But at the end of it, when we leave here, may we have seen Jesus more clearly. And may we have worshipped him more fully and followed him wherever he leads us. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.